You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I want the people to know that it saved my soul, but I still like to listen to the radio. They say rock and roll is wrong, we'll give you one more chance. I say it feels so good, I gotta get up and dance. I know what's right, I know what's wrong, I don't confuse it. All I'm really trying to say is why should the devil have all the good music? Even for those of us who love it, the phrase Christian rock is an embarrassment, calling to mind as it does images of recommended if you like charts, weak copies of secular bands, sold to gullible evangelicals with no sense of quality or artistic purpose. But it didn't have to be this way. For decades, there have been Christian singers and bands who saw what they were doing as art rather than propaganda and who strove for quality. Arguably, that tradition goes back to the origins of Christian rock, namely the California singer-songwriter Larry Norman, who made Jesus music a viable cultural force, and whose career quickly dissolved into tragedy and rumor. Norman died in February 2008, more or less in disgrace, and a controversial documentary, Fallen Angel, released the following year, hurt his reputation even more. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is Gregory Allen Thornberry. He's the Chancellor of King's College in Manhattan, and his latest book, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, shows us another side of Larry Norman. That book is out this month from Convergent, and I'm delighted it's brought him on the show today. How are you, Gregory? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the program. Sure thing. I think the name Larry Norman is probably familiar to most people who have even a passing interest in Christian rock as a genre or a cultural phenomenon, but I think it's probably best if we do begin with a brief introduction to him and his work. What makes him so important to evangelical culture? Well, there are a number of things. Uh, First off is that uh, Larry Norman was really the first one to try to talk about Jesus um, in the rock and roll format, uh, he was the pioneer. So calling him the, the father or the godfather of Christian rock or Jesus move, uh, music, even though he would not have liked to think of himself that way, especially as Christian rock became what you described uh, at the beginning of the program. Uh, so he was the pioneer. In 1969, he released a record on Capitol Records called Upon This Rock, which uh, was uh, called the Sgt. Peppers of Christianity, and that really got the whole movement going. I I think a second thing that is notable about Larry Norman is that he was a uh, recognized artist in his own right in the mainstream secular rock music industry when his 1972 album, Only Visiting This Planet, came out on MGM Verve Records. Uh, Billboard magazine said he's probably the most important songwriter since Paul Simon, and yet he was talking about Jesus. So he was, unlike a lot of other Christian artists who who uh, try to get their notoriety in Christian circles and then cross their fingers and hope to make it in the secular music industry, Larry did it the other way. He was um, had a top 20 hit with his band People in the late 60s. He toured with The Who, he opened up for Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Buffalo Springfield, he hung out with Skip uh, uh, Spence from Moby Grape and a lot of these famous people. And so he was accepted in that community um, and not accepted in the church community in, in many ways. He was as banned from uh, Bible bookstores as John and Yoko 
So he was a, he was a mainstream act that insisted on talking about Jesus. So he is um, a holy fool character, I say in the book. He was doing something that neither the church was interested in, uh, and really the secular rock music industry wasn't interested in. The church uh, didn't like that he was a rocker, um, and uh, the secular music industry didn't exactly have a category to put him in. And so in the early going, they didn't think he was commercial. Lastly, um, he was a part of a massive cultural phenomenon uh, that began with the Jesus movement in uh, the early 70s, which caught fire and became a national news story, and eventually uh, culminated in events like Explo 72 at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, where uh, the late, great Billy Graham preached, and Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Andre Crouch, and Larry Norman played in front of more than 100,000 teenagers in, in Dallas, Texas. And that movement then grew up to become uh, a, a large phenomenon, a uh, billion-dollar industry, which wound up becoming CCM, Christian Contemporary Music. So th- those are some of the highlights. And, and my favorite fact about him, Frank Black from the Pixies is like a monster fan. Well, actually, Frank Black grew up, I actually have letters from uh, Charles Thompson, a.k.a. Uh, Black Francis, uh, back when he was a teenager to Larry Norman, just as a fan. The, the two eventually wound up becoming friends, but the Pixies' first outing called Come On Pilgrim is a Larry Norman reference, and Black Francis says that uh, Larry's song 666 uh, had a line in it that gave birth to the idea for the Pixies. Uh, the line is, we served at his table and slept on the floor, but he starved us and beat us and nailed us to the door. He said the Pixies was born with that Line And then there are other big artists, Bono, um, uh, Doug March from Built to Spill, uh, Damien Girado, John Mellencamp are all, would all count them, members of Guns N' Roses would all count themselves as uh, Larry Norman fans. It's, it's weird to think about how influential he was, not just on Christian rock, but on quote unquote secular rock. I, I, I think most people who know about him are aware of how important he is. For our little subculture, but uh, his his mainstream importance was new to me when I was reading your book. Yeah, he had uh, actually more appeal to those who are outside the camp. He was definitely one of those people that believed, you know, that you didn't need to believe in order to belong. And so he befriended a lot of people when he lived in Hollywood, uh, you know, for all of those years. You know, the people that he was, you know, hobnobbing with were, you know, um, major performers, studio execs, um, you know, people in the film industry. He was best friends with Dudley Moore, who, you know, at the height of his popularity in the 70s and 80s was one of the most recognized actors in the world. Um, And so it it was not just the music industry. he He was well known just more broadly in the entertainment industry as well. What was the experience of a Larry Norman concert like? I know you've you've been to some. Yeah. Well, it was really uh, designed by Larry to not be a place that you want to be entertained or to have fun at. Uh, a Larry Norman concert was designed to make you feel uncomfortable, potentially, and force you to think. Uh, I opened the book talking about Larry's stage routine in which uh, anyone that saw Larry Norman 
concert knows that he would uh, he would argue with the sound man over the overall uh, level of his guitar volume. Uh, his writer was very clear, um, flat EQ, uh, vocal mic, and uh, guitar mic, and they were supposed to be set to the same level. But inevitably, between the sound check and the actual concert, uh, the guitar level would be turned down because in Christian music, especially if it was a venue that was sponsored by a ministry or a church, the message is always more important than the instrument. And he would uh, he would sometimes embarrass the sound man at the back of the board, and he would say, you know, could you, you know, turn up this you know guitar mic level to what I asked? This is rock and roll, not folk music. Or he'd look at the PA and he'd say, uh, you know, they used to drop. These, uh, these speakers on the enemy during the war because you couldn't hear them coming. People would laugh, but he would argue with the sound man, and, but then but he would keep it up. And what happened was all of a sudden something that seemed like, oh, I'm going to this nice Jesus concert. All of a sudden people are kind of sitting forward on their seat and it feels like a fight's about ready to break out. Now he's got them where he wants them. And there's an air, air of tension. So he would, uh, for example, if people started clapping along when he sang a song like Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music or something like that, or Sweet Song of Salvation, he would bring the concert to a grinding halt. And he'd say, most of you are white, stop clapping, you know. Um, <laughs> and, but but the, the goal was for him to use the music to segue into rather uh, intimate commentary that really um, brought people's guard down and helped them sort of open up to what he's saying. You know, a lot of people thought uh, the act uh, was arrogant. You know, um, the first time he played in the UK in, uh, in uh, you know, at the beginning of um, 1971, he, uh, he walked out on stage with his guitar in the case and would, you know, slowly open up the guitar, tune it, kind of, you know, he had long blonde hair and, you know, people would sort of fidget uncomfortably in their, in their seats. It was kind of a domination technique. He wanted people to slow down long enough to pay attention to what he was saying. And the most famous example of this during the Jesus movement was when people would clap after the songs, Larry would just hold up his right index finger and point skyward and look up until they stopped clapping. And pretty soon, all of these hundreds or thousands of kids that were in the audience would not clap after the song, they would just point heavenward and it gave off this sort of mystical eerie effect which came to be known as the one-way sign which was sort of the emblem of the jesus movement so it was uh it was like that now he toured with the band too and when he played with the band it was full-on bluesy raw rock and roll and uh you know he pinned your ears back um but he could play it both uh, quiet and and he could also really rock the only time i ever saw him and I, I had forgotten that this even happened until I read about it in your book, is the the Cornerstone concert where Daniel Amos was the mm -hmm. backing group for Randy Stonehill, and he brought Larry Norman out. And, and once I read about it, I remembered I was there, and I knew, I had a sense of how important that was, that he and Stonehill, about whom 
more in a few minutes. Hadn't talked for years. I, I don't remember anything about his performance there, but as close to the end of his life as it was, I assume it was less uh, raucous than some of his earlier Actually, shows. Actually, he, he played at Creation on the main stage. Randy Stonehill and Daniel Amos were sort of in the oldies act uh, stage, and uh, uh, Larry was playing on the main stage in front of the big crowd. He brought a band. Um, one of the funny things that he said at that concert at, at Creation, uh, I believe it was in 2000, was he said, you know, we've got every adjective now of different kind of Christian music. There's Christopharian and there's Christian rap and there's, um, you know, uh, all, all these things. He said, I kind of liked it better when I was the only one. Uh, one way to read the history of rock and roll is as a series of father issues. Yeah. Uh, your 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 book seems to suggest that Larry Norman's life and career fit that narrative more or less neatly. Yeah. What sorts of conflicts did he have with his father, and how did that influence his work? Well, uh, in in a lot of ways, uh, I saw a parallel in terms of Larry and his father in his early years to that of Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, his father, Michael Peterson, um, Joe Norman in the early going was very earnest, uh, sometimes stern, definitely thought that the worst possible thing that his son could do would be to grow up and become Elvis Presley and made that known. Um, you know, Larry taught himself how to um, how to play the ukulele by fingering silently the chord patterns because he didn't want anybody to know that he was actually learning how to play the, you know, the ukulele and, and later the guitar. So there was a lot of tension around that issue. And uh, I do talk about that in the book because uh, Larry was a part of this, you know, coming generation, you know, the baby boomer generation. And Joe was, um, uh, just barely saved from going to D-Day. And so he had that sort of greatest generation mindset. And uh, they were worlds apart. Later on, um, after Larry had been sort of um, chewed up and spit out by his own friends and peers, uh, he sort of had a rapprochement with his father, and uh, they were very close towards the end. But the issues that that Larry experienced, you know, with his own father then got repeated where Larry became a father figure to these younger artists that wanted to follow in his wake. And that created all kinds of problems that he, he wanted. He both wanted to be a father figure to them and, and didn't want that. He seems to have been very conflicted. Yeah, he was. Um, he wanted an artist colony. He wanted a. He wanted something in between um, Woodstock and, you know, Big Pink Studio and Labrie. And he wanted to, he did want to sort of be um, the Potter Familius. And so when he would recruit new talent, whether that, you know, um, was, uh, you know, a Randy Stonehill or a, or a Mark Hurd or um, uh, Steve Camp or people like that, he had an agreement with them that, you know, they would have to go to boot camp and they, they weren't going to release a record basically for the first, you know, two years. Because the first year it was just like learning how to write a good song and like doing ma major drafts and, and, and learning the trade and how you make a record sound good. And um, he did sort of 
he was sort of imperious in that way. And he took people under his wing and, and, you know, he swept people up into his charismatic uh, personality. But then when they sort of, you know, trailed along after him, he's like, what are you guys doing following me? You should be doing your own thing. So it, it was, it, it did uh, set him up for failure in that sense as a sort of father figure. I think probably a dynamic a lot of professors are not unfamiliar with, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I think is a theme in the book uh, is that you have to be careful who you help out with their, you know, dream for their life. Because if you inspire someone that a dream that they believe in could be true and they really pursue it, then if it doesn't happen like you originally talked about in those heady times sitting at whatever, if you're a professor sitting in your office, you know, uh, talking with a, with a student about maybe they could become a great philosopher or, or scholar or artist or whatever, or whether it was Larry Norman with his Solid Rock record label, be careful who you help out with your dream because if it doesn't pan out, you become the living embodiment of the fact that tre- dreams don't come true. That that's that's hard to live with. It's one of the reasons people turned on him. Yeah. I'm not saying he doesn't he doesn't have personality issues of his own, but <laughs> I did I did come yeah. out feeling much more sorry for him than I ever had before. Yeah, you know, speaking of Black Francis, when Black Black Francis blurbed the book and uh, said to me, you know, that he was he was both excited and really it was hard to read this book and he said the title of the sub the t- another title for the book could have been way harder than broadway because <laughs> this is the sort of abuse that larry underwent because you know he was at the vanguard um some of it was warranted in, in, in other times as you see because i had the backstory to this i had access to all the correspondence and letters and that was that were sent back and forth so i was able to sort of like go back in the TARDIS, so to speak, in the time machine, and go back to that time and feel it as it was happening. And and it did seem uh, like there was some ganging up from from time to time. Well, I want to um, want to talk about Norman's connection to Pentecostalism uh, and the Charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. He grew up Southern Baptist. He seems mm-hmm. to have attended a Presbyterian church during the early days of his career. Yeah. What what connection would you see between him and the Charismatic movement? Well, definitely the Jesus movement was was Charismatic, and the Presbyterian church that he went to, Hollywood Presbyterian Church, um, was uh, definitely uh, a part of that early Jesus movement period, but they had this side ministry, you know, um, you know, the, the salt club ministry, which was sort of a coffee house thing. So that was sort of in, but not of the church, uh, so, so to speak. But the Jesus movement itself became this moment where you did have, uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the charismatic movement and influence coming coming through in, in some in, in some of it in in its um, you know wildest extremes that wound up becoming you know cult cult like later on 
Um, when you talk about Tony and Susie Alamo, they take a group of Jesus movement followers to Arkansas, and it becomes a national news story of sort of like Jim Jones. Well, yeah, that, that story was new to me. I, uh, that, that is some crazy stuff. Yeah. So, so the, there's no doubt that the Jesus movement itself sort of thrived in this uh, environment where you're talking about the role of the Holy Spirit a lot more than it would have been talked about in, you know, conventional Southern Baptist or Presbyterian or denominational life. And um, and it really framed uh, a lot of, you know, the charismatic movement. Now, in terms of Pentecostalism, you know, the Pentecostals wouldn't have liked Larry Norman because Pentecostalism is, is more the sort of fundamentalist version of charismatic. So fundamentalist Pentecostal preachers, like Jimmy Swagger, hated Larry Norman's guts. You know, they they uh, actively preached against Christian rock. Um so there was a bit of a tension there between charismatic and, and Pentecostal. Our listeners who are unfamiliar with that strange chapter in evangelicalism would be wise to go to the website AV, what is it, av1611.org. Have you seen this? <laughs> yes. You can, right. you can, for, for, it, it's, like a, it's like a time warp back to 1984 when you can see – you, you can see some fundamentalist really wringing his hands over those African drum beats. Yeah. Backwards oh, yeah. masking. And, you know, that, that's, um, that's definitely something, something I think that this generation has sort of forgotten. That, you know, certainly when I was coming of age, there were a lot of those discussions like, you know, certain drum beats, you know, from Africa. There was a racial element to it. Like, that is of the devil. Like, that is something that is tied into voodoo. I definitely heard that. Lots growing up from fundamentalist preachers that, that, that I was around. And so um, we forget when, you know, Larry writes a song like, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? It was verboten to, you know, have you know, the, the flatted third was the devil's interval. And the devil lived there. And um, so there was a lot of harassment that came from that side of things. But at least you never, at least you never used any backward masking. <laughs> Actually, there is some debate about that. I, I, in the Christianity Today article that I wrote for this issue of Christianity Today, I included a story that didn't make it into the final cut of the book which is uh, John Darnielle from The Mountain Goats in his novel uh, called Wolf and White Van. When I read that, saw that book came out, I ordered it, and my friend David Dark said, call me when you get to page 120. (laughs) And sure enough, the title of the book, Wolf and White Van, is a Larry Norman reference. And the protagonist of John Darnielle's book is sitting in front of the TV like in the mid-1980s, and he's watching... Um, you know, uh, Paul and Jan Crouch on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and they were there with an expert on rock music to talk about satanic music in rock music. And they said, you would be shocked to find out that even so-called Christian rockers, you know, are following the devil. And so they produce Larry Norman record, and they play the song 666, and they're, you know, doing the backward masking on the turntable. And supposedly the following phrase is heard, wolf in white van, wolf in white van. 
exactly <laughs> why that's a nefarious Wait, phrase. what does that mean? Well, I, I think they interpret, they sort of riffed on it and said, well, he's a wolf in sheep's he's, he's here telling you he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. If he was really interested in seducing the young people, why would he include, like, is he just driven to subvert himself? It's something like a bad guy, in a, like a bad melodrama uh, you would know, do. You know, I, what I said about that was uh, it always mystified me as a teenager why people were more interested in what was being said backwards than forward. It seemed like a perverse feature of Christian life, that they were more concerned with hidden messages than what was being said, obviously. I do remember Petra put out a record, and they they very clearly had backward masking on a song. And when you played it backward, it said, why are you looking for the devil when you should be looking for the Lord? <laughs> I've got a Daniel Amos bootleg from 1982. Now, there's a band that loved backward masking. Oh, but, my God. But goodness, na- I'm jealous. I would love to have oh, that. I can send it to you. It's, it's, it's digital. Yeah. But uh, any, anyway, uh, Terry Taylor spends three, four minutes explaining why backward masking is, is no big deal. And it, it's just – I was born in 1982, so I, I – I yeah. have no personal experience of backward masking being being an evil thing, and it is it is a weird <laughs> historical document. Yeah, if this is something right. anybody ever cared about. <laughs> that's right. Well, I was recently interviewed for a book about Christian rock, and the author asked me what I thought about Hal Lindsey, and I had to tell him I thought very little about him, other than that I knew he wrote the late great Planet Earth. He told me, and I was very surprised to hear this, that Lindsay was in some ways the impetus for Larry Norman's only visiting this planet, and thus also for Christian rock in general. As far as I can tell, and there's not a, I have a galley, so there's no index, but as far as I can tell, there's really only one offhand mention of Hal Lindsay in your book. Do, do you think that the, the author of this other book is overstating his... Yeah, I I do, and and here's here's why. I mean, I... Larry definitely was in that. So there was a group of those preachers that were in and around those heady Jesus movement days. So Arthur Blessett, um, you know, would have been uh, one of them. And Hal Lindsey was one of them. Hal Lindsey was, you know, I talk in the book about this, you know, this uh, Mar- Jesus march on the Capitol in Sacramento um, in, in 1971. You know, Hal Lindsey would have been one of those preachers um, during that time. But Larry writes a song like, I wish we'd all been ready. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy. We'd all been ready There's no time to change your mind The sun has come And you've been left behind um, You know, in uh, 1968, maybe earlier Oh, wow, I didn't realize it I guess your book says it's that old I was surprised then Yeah so it's on his first record, which comes out in 1969. So it was written, you know, sometime when he was a staff writer at Capitol Records. And I, I think it's probably just as likely that Hal Lindsey got some of it from listening to Larry and, and to that that song. I, you know, it was a, it was a 
it was a hothouse, you know, so it was being all that stuff was being shared. But when Larry titles his record Only Visiting This Planet, that's that's an old folk song notion. I mean, that's like a Carter family type thing. I think he's getting that from the world weary, you know, spirituals, you know, um, pilgrim and a stranger traveling through this land. I'm only passing through. So when he says I'm only visiting this planet, that's not like a Hal Lindsey thing, although it does get taken up that way by the time things like, you know, A Thief in the Night comes out and there's that (laughs) sort of, you know, rapture fever. Larry had written some of the songs that wound up kind of becoming the soundtrack for that, although I don't think Larry, as far as I could tell, had any sort of really worked out eschatology like Hal Lindsey did. He was also not really a joiner, wouldn't you say? Who, Larry? Larry, he, he's just not interested <laughs> in being a part of any big movements. No, he sat on his own fence post and whistled his own tune. Uh, and on that note, Christian Rock had a reputation in the 80s and 90s as this overwhelmingly conservative Republican phenomenon. <laughs> I think people might really be surprised to hear the amount of protest music on Larry Norman's records, and especially on the early ones. What sorts of social issues capture his imagination, and, and what's distinctive about the way he writes and sings about them? Yeah, well, I mean, he was very sort of progressive in his political views. I mean, you know, 1960, 1969, 19 through 19, you know, 75, uh, some of the more political stuff that Larry wrote was directed towards the systemic racism in the white evangelical church, the uh, penchant for Christians to get caught up in American warmongering, um, the uh, easy relationship that uh, uh Christianity had with the, you know, American uh, uh, political machine. Um, you know, one of the famous lines from his, one of my favorite songs of his, called The Great American Novel. You kill a black man at midnight just for talking to your daughter. Then you make his wife your mistress And you leave her without water And the sheet you wear upon your face Is the sheet your children sleep on And at every meal you say a prayer You don't believe but still you keep on And your money says so he was definitely of the of the view that um, there was a reckoning coming for um, nominal Christianity, and um, he he dealt with s you know sexual tra- sexually transmitted diseases. You know he had a line and why don't you look into Jesus? You, you got gonorrhea on Valentine's Day. You, VD, you're still looking for the perfect lay. Oh, I didn't make the VD connection. <laughs> There's layers. Yeah, Val- Valentine's Day VD, and he would like have pastors come up and literally pull the guitar, the the plug out of the guitar, and tell him to sit down. So it was radical music, and and when he played for Carter, um, on the s- south lawn of the White House, you know um, he was told don't be political, and he sang the Great American Novel, 
And um, he talked about, um, you know, um, Kissinger's easy relationship, all too easy relationship with global capitalism and Chase Manhattan Bank, you know, playing in front of the president of the United States. So and even later, his his last best album called Stranded in Babylon um, has a lot of political stuff on it um, about the CIA's involvement and, you know, the CIA ships heroin to finance their secret wars. So it's very contemporary stuff uh, to a lot of the, you know, conspiracy theories and definitely not the kind of thing. I remember when I was the general manager at a Christian radio station, there were so many songs that the higher ups had banned from Larry Norman. Like huh. you're not supposed to play this song. Did you play <laughs> it were, anyway? Like, Listen on the C D. Yeah. <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> of course it I also slipped Pixie songs in there too. Got into trouble for that. Well hey, they're basically a Christian band, right? Just don't play Nimrod's son. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, my my favorite thing about his politics, it's not my favorite thing, because obviously his work with racial reconciliation is amazing. But I love, love, love how much he hates the moonshot. He <laughs> he just thinks the moonshot is a shameful, squalid waste of money. Uh, yeah. And it comes up in song after song after song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They brought back a big bag of rocks. Only cost two hundred forty seven billion. Must be nice rocks. <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, and then his connection was, uh, what are we, why is that money being allocated for that when there's people starving, you know, in, in, in America, uh, when there's still a problem with radical poverty. And uh, so you, you talk about an unpopular thing. Yeah. Like everybody loved the moonshot, um, right? Yeah, I was born and raised an orphan in a land that once was free, in a land that poured its love out on the moon. And he has that that line, line. you you say we beat the Russians to the moon. I say you starved your children to do it. Yeah. Everybody loved it except for Larry and and Marvin Gaye, who who also (laughs) hated the moonshot. So he's in good company. That's right. That's right. That's good company to be in. If there is a villain in this book, and I'll, I'll let you tell me if that if is, is legitimate or not, uh, it's probably Randy Stonehill, who converted to Christianity because of Larry Norman's influence to one degree or another, and who seems to have been something like his best friend for several years in the 1970s, and then things went bad. Yeah. Uh, what was the cause of their falling out, and were they ever able to reconcile? Well, you know, that was, that was definite. They were like the Glimmer Twins. They were like Mick and Keith, and it was a lot like that relationship where they were forged together at a very heady time, and, um, you know, the story goes that, um, and it's true, you know, Randy was, you know, kind of a gangly kid who was, you know, doing pot and uh, got to know Larry, and, um prayed to receive Christ in Norman's kitchen. There's even a song about that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, difficult because they were so, they were so close and, um, worked together for so long. And to, I, I don't see Randy as a villain, um, in any conventional sense of the word. I mean, first of all, 
I don't think that Norman could have built his his uh, mythology or brand in the same way without Randy. Randy is a phenomenal talent, but um, Randy stayed at Solid Rock longer than anyone, and um, Randy became very close to a lot of those other guys in Solid Rock, and they sort of saw the guy at the top, Larry, as being the person who was had kind of been holding them all back from getting the kind of success that they they wanted. So that's one level. The second strange subtext, and this is why the book is so weird and these things don't get talked about in polite Christian circles, is that Randy married Randy's first marriage was to Larry's ex-girlfriend. And so that's kind of weird. And there's that sort of whole thing is swirling. And then after Randy divorced um, his first wife, Larry then married Randy's ex-wife. And so the rumor swirled that, you know, Larry had stolen Randy's wife, which I mean. But what a weird thing to claim because Stonehill got remarried well before Larry Norman married Sarah. I know. Sarah. Yes, he did. Uh, Randy got married, I think, two or three weeks after his divorce was finalized. So, never a great <laughs> sign. I have so, to say. So you know, there, there's 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 that, um, and yes, Larry got married um, uh, much much later um, for you know his his second marriage, but. You know, back then, this in a pre-internet age, and, and even still today, you know, once that gets out there and it just gets repeated, it's it's like, you know, print the legend, you know. Um, it, it became convenient right. for people to sort of portray, you know, Larry in, in, in that light. And, you know, there was sort of a grudge there, and, and Randy didn't feel obligated to dispel the rumors. You know, he's like, well, people are going to talk. So. And it, it doesn't help that Stonehill ingratiated himself into the CCM industry in a way that Larry, I don't think, could have if he wanted to, which he well, apparently did not. Yeah. I mean, Stonehill was a, a semi big CCM star, so of course people are going to believe him over Larry Norman, who. Is crazy yeah, best, and you right? know, Randy is from every. You know, I met him when I was a freshman in high school. He came and did a concert at Messiah College. You know, he's you know, like a hail fellow, well met, and you know, is 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 very charming. And then when he gets serious, you know, you're like, oh wow, yeah. Um, so, and and you're right, he was very mainstream. You know, Randy was putting out sort of stop doing Christian rock per se and started doing you know um songs like shut the door keep out the devil you know that people youth groups sang and that that kind of thing and um he you know his his concerts were more light-hearted and mainstream ccm and he was sort of in that early crowd with you know amy grant and so forth and and so yeah he was on mer records you know and he was a he was in the system, and Larry was definitely outside the system. The other central tragedy of Norman's life seems to have been 
um, this thing that he and his fans have traditionally called his airplane accident. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that is not a plane crash. What, what, what happened there? And, and how much do you think we can blame the decline of his career on it? Well, there's no doubt in my mind reading, uh, you know, having access to his correspondence and uh, his, uh, you know, notes from his family and, you know, contemporaneous accounts, you know, I, I didn't go the route of like interviewing people whose memories were 40 years old about this. I didn't see any point in that because I had an embarrassment of riches sitting all around me. I had the real time correspondence. There's no doubt to me that just as an archivist, there's a distinct shift that happened after the airplane accident. Now, um, what actually happened there? There's no doubt. I have all the records. The the overhead compartment did come down and crash on his head. You know, United Airlines acknowledged that. Um, and to to Larry, he uh, he went. You know, he sort of couldn't complete anything after that. You know, when you listen to 1976's album In Another Land, which was his most popular record, it is slick. It's polished. It's uh, its production values are through the roof as in terms of a polished finish. He never did an album like that again. And when you listen to 1981's album, uh Something new under the sun, even though it's a great record, it's kind of it sounds raw and unfinished in a way, and and, and sort of um, some of the mixes are a, little, are a little odd. And he, you know, he he just was not able to function in the same way. And everyone that was around him said that. Now, whether or not that was an actual physical trauma um, that was physiochemical at that point, or whether or not. That was the moment at which all of this pent-up um, anxiety and stress that had built up for a decade kind of crashed down on him, and he had sort of a nervous breakdown. And that the impetus for that was the the plane, you know, the plane accident. I don't know, but the plane accident definitely happened, and there's no doubt about that. Something, you know, an airplane compartment came down on his head. And um, he drifted for a long time until he had this, you know, healing, you know, in incident uh, uh, much, much later on. So I think it's a real, you know, it's a real thing. And to distinguish the mental health side from it, from a sort of a, you know, um, physical thing, I think maybe is missing the point. As a... Uh Daniel I am a super fan. I'm one I'm one too. I'm one too. Well then you you know, like like on the Daniel Amos side, all you hear about Larry Norman is this incredibly unpleasant experience with the delay of horrendous disc. Um and, and unfortunately that comes out of this really beautiful, ambitious artist colony you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. yeah. Street level management and solid rock records. Uh what went wrong there? Why did it not happen, and why did uh, why was it so bad for for poor Daniel Amos? Well, so I, I tried to go as much into that in the book as I could, and I actually the uh, the director's cut of this book has a lot more on all of these stories, 
but my editors at Random House wanted a more disciplined book, and I'm grateful for it because it does read along at a good clip. And, but as somebody that had been immersed in this, I was reading all this back and forth correspondence. But from what I can gather, and, and listen, I'm, I'm a huge Terry Taylor fan myself. I think he is a phenomenal talent. And from everything I could tell from the correspondence, he himself is just a great guy. Um, yeah, I've never heard anybody say anything else about he's, him. He's, he's amazing. But here, here's what happened. Daniel Amos was the youth ministry band at Calvary Chapel. And they were on Maranatha Records, which was a bad fit for them. <laughs> to say the least. And they, they had produced a record um, that they never recovered the production costs on. And they kind of were at a point where they needed to be bailed out. And uh, Ward was interested in, in them. Um, and they, you know, Phil Mangano said, hey, this is the perfect, the, they fit us perfectly. Phil Mangano was sort of the business manager for Street Level, which was the booking agency. But there was a deep, Larry knew that the best way to make money was to try the record to the booking. So you could not be a street level artist and get booked without being a solid rock artist because Larry had a particular mission that he was trying to deliver. Well, Daniel Amos didn't really fit that mission so directly. And so there was some tension there. And so they brought with them horrendous disc to, to Larry. And, the, and the, the record was pretty far along. Larry didn't do a whole lot other than make what I felt like were a few savvy suggestions about the album order and, and, and so forth. So from that point well, he, on, he had the Mad I Love You number 19. That's right? right, which is a great song. That was not. Oh, original. yeah. It's hard to imagine that record without without that track. Yeah. And and um, Hound of, uh, you know, Hound of Heaven, you know, um, it was, uh, you know, another one that Larry just insisted had to be on there. And that's another one killer song. Um, yeah, it really is. So, so two things happened. One was that uh, da- Daniel Amos um, was trying, while they were working on Horrendous Disc and being a solid rock artist, they were trying to get a secular record deal. And what they wanted to do was just, you know, um, put out horrendous disc immediately and take all of the songs that they had written while they were a solid rock artist under a, you know, management arrangement with Word Records and solid rock and just go take those songs and pitch them to a secular record label. And Larry said, well, we can't. Do I can't just, you know, give something back to you that you are under con- contract to Word Records, and now they've put all this money into horrendous disc, and they've got to recoup all of their money before we talk about anything like that. And and then it just got to be, you know, difficult because Daniel Amos hired a lawyer. They they got out of their, you know, um, solid rock contract. And they tried to get everything back. And it just went back and forth between the lawyer and Larry. 
And Larry just played it like Muhammad Ali rope dope The lawyer would send him a letter, and he was like, if Daniel Amos wants to pay for a letter, good for that. And he'd write the lawyer back. And a month would pass. The lawyer would send another letter back. A couple weeks would pass. Larry would be on tour. A couple more weeks passed. Larry would write a letter back. So a lot of time elapsed just in this, like, you know, lawyers sending back and lawyers sending letters to, you know, Larry. And there were two different there were two different attorneys that were used too. And so eventually Daniel Amos wound up agreeing to Larry's terms essentially, like eighteen months later. And that's why as far as I can tell, that's why horrendous disc was was delayed. There were some legitimate issues. There was like a labeling issue with Word where the you know, the original vinyl the or the track order was wrong. Um, so there were crazy mistakes like that, but it, it was, had they not wanted to try to go the legal route, it probably, you know, could have, uh, gotten expedited as far as I could tell. And Larry was sort of, um, passive aggressive about it at that point. He was like, okay, let them spin their wheels. You know, if that's the way they want to do it, that's what I got out of it. And unfortunately, the record didn't get released on CD till the 21st century. And then when it did, I don't know if you remember this, when it did, the only bonus tracks, and there are dozens of bonus tracks from those sessions, but the only bonus tracks Larry included were uh, two versions of him singing Hound of Heaven in a, like a lounge style. When we, yeah. That of. is like first class trolling. Yeah, it's, I, I there's, uh, yeah, that's. I, I shouldn't be laughing, but yeah, you're right. Uh, there was, there were, you know, there was going to be a record of Larry singing the songs that Daniel Amos wrote that were, you know, the masters that Daniel Amos recorded for their next record, um, and that never came out. And you know, I don't even, I don't know if those tapes still exist or. You know what what happened to those? So yeah, that's a shame. While we're on horrendous disc, I should go ahead and say that they are re-releasing this in a super deluxe five disc disc version, which I, I, I imagine you can still pledge over at Kickstarter if any of our listeners are interested in doing. Yeah, so. definitely do it because when you listen to that, I mean those solid rock records, if they if they were on solid rock and they were produced and sort of overseen by Larry. Those records like Horrendous Disc and Mark Hurd's Appalachian, uh, you know, Melody and Welcome to Paradise by Randy Stonehill, they're really fine rock records in the 70s. And um, I, I love the sound of Horrendous Disc. I just think that they sound killer, you know, on the on Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous record. And it, it's really like solid rock could have been such a wonderful thing. And it's yeah. so sad that it wasn't. Yeah. For yeah. whatever reason, it wasn't. In multiple reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, but Larry shouldn't have been. Larry should have never been doing everything that he did. I mean, he was out on the road trying to raise money to keep producing these, you know, artists while trying to produce records, while trying to run a business, and uh, it was too much. You know, it was sort of, a, um, you know, he was he was sort of OCD. And so everything got maximal attention and it, everything took forever. And so some of those artists like Steve Scott, who if he 
had Larry had released Steve Scott's record when he first did it, you know, um, you know, Steve Scott went on to be on like Island Records. You know, Larry could have had like a another hit on his hands, but it, it didn't get done, and people got frustrated. The only artist that really didn't was Mark Hurd, you know, who arguably out of all of them was the greatest talent. Um, and he seems well. And it's weird because Mark Hurd seems to have gotten frustrated with everybody else in the world except, <laughs> eventually, except for Larry. That's exactly right. Yeah. They, Larry and Mark were thick as thieves. I remember when Mark died, they interviewed you know because Larry was dead by this point. They interviewed, um, uh, or maybe it was the 10th anniversary or something of Mark's death. They interviewed Randy and said, you know, Mark just didn't get close to anybody. And I was like, that's a big bologna sandwich because he and Larry, I, I look at the correspondence. Their correspondence to each other was just hilarious. And, you know, it, it almost I wanted to have an appendix at the back of the book, which was just Mark Hurd and Larry's letters back and forth because they're rip-roaring funny. And um, so no, anyway. one, no one who's as good at writing lyrics as Mark Hurd yeah. could not be funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's something about being that level of a songwriter that you just have to be funny. Yeah, yeah. And but, but some of the some of the correspondence wasn't nice about some of the some of the folks involved, so I left it out. Uh, Christian Rock is pretty much in shambles now. Yeah. Uh, it's been largely, and I would say unfortunately, replaced by the worship industry. Yeah. But do you think there's a young or youngish figure or figures who have inherited Larry Norman's legacy? You know, um, that's really that's a really great question. I may not be the best I may not be the best person to to ask because there really is in a way, this book is sort of about the failure of the Christian or evangelical community to keep artists around. And um, so you're right that there's not much left except for um, uh, praise and worship music. Um, and and uh, so, you know, I'm not... Uh, I'm not probably the best person because I don't listen to, you know, folks that I would say, you know, are, are in the train of Larry Norman. What I hope is that, and you might have some suggestions and I'll check them out. What I'm, what I have seen is like my friends who are, you know, indie artists who very quietly are, are Christians um, are reading this book and they're like, okay, like, now I see why this is so hard to 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 do and and to talk about. So um, no names for me immediately spring to mind, um, but I'm you know certainly open to them. Like I have a friend who's an up and coming uh, art alt country artist um, in Nashville. A couple of them come to mind, like uh, the Colonel and Kirby Brown. Uh, their names that you know the colonels on um, on single lock records, which is John Paul White for the from the Civil Wars record. You can sort of hear that uh, in the background that the interest in spiritual things. Um, what if, what what ideas do you have? I'm I'm genuinely curious. The the one that comes to my mind is Derek Webb, who who oh. I think has that similar prophet status in relation to the church, and who hmm. is also very controversial. Yeah, 
Yeah, to say it, he <laughs> to, did, to I think he mildly. recently said he was bi curious or something like that. Yeah. That's... Did he? I, he? Sometimes I think he says things just to say them. Yeah. At this point, I think his brand has become shocking evangelicals. But at his best, I think he is attempting to do something similar to what Larry Norman was attempting to do at his best. You're getting the book that Norman is the spiritual godfather of the spiritual but not religious movement. Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you think he would make of the rise of the nuns uh, that has received so much press the last few years? I think that uh, he would he would definitely um, see a lot of himself in that attitude because he himself was was very critical of sort of the middle class bourgeois values of you know traditional evangelical churches. Um, I think where he would d- definitely put push back on that, uh, on the spiritual nuns, is that he would, you know, put a Bible in their hands and a copy of Only Visiting This Planet, <laughs> and uh, he would, and, you know, he would say, there is, there are guardrails here. Just because the church has let you down doesn't mean that the faith will leave you down and, um, or let you down. And so, you know, it's interesting to me, and I, I've got another interview coming up with, with Crux about th- this interesting feature in Larry's biography where a lot of the authors that he loved and s- some of the people that uh, listened to his music became sort of prominent Catholic leaders, like his brother-in-law, Dale Alquist, founded the G.K. Chesterton Society because Larry insisted that Dale read G.K. Chesterton and that G.K. Chesterton, I think precisely because of his robust Catholic faith, was a better writer and more imaginative than C.S. Lewis, which is kind of controversial to say, but Larry said it. And he was close to Malcolm Muggeridge and people like that. So he definitely, Larry definitely liked the historicity of the faith, but without um, these sorts of... Uh, clerical authorities constantly looking over your shoulder. He was anti-clerical, but uh, was was sort of conventional in his theology. That's kind of rock and roll, too, if you think about it, how, how traditional rock and roll ultimately is, yeah. and yet how anti-authority. Yeah, it's a, that is rock and roll. You're right. That's good. Well, I hope that some of our listeners who aren't familiar with Larry Norman's work have had their interest piqued by this conversation. Where would you recommend people begin their exploration of Norman's music? Yeah, definitely start with only visiting this planet. The the three albums that are called the trilogy, Only Visiting This Planet, Something New Under the Sun, and In Another Land, listen to those back to back. And as... Uh, as I just uh, I emailed another uh, journalist today and who is not a Christian, I said, you know, convince me that, uh, you know, Larry Norman, you know, is everything you say he was. I, I was with Larry's brother, Charles, while I was working at this on this book and Isaac Brock from Modest Mouse called and, and he had just gotten from Charles a vinyl LP of uh, – only visiting this planet. 
And Isaac Rock said, man, I don't know about the religion thing, but uh, your brother was an expletive hot songwriter. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was just, he was blown away by the sort of the talent level. You know, Larry's just like churning out these like incredible tunes and, you know, pioneering the rock musical, you know, before even Pete Townsend is doing it. So I would say those three records. Um, but then once you kind of have taken the bait, even though some of uh, Larry's other records are less consistent, he still, up until the end, wrote some real gems. And you find those in his extended catalog. And it's why people, you know, got obsessive, you know, with collecting every single record. Because, you know, you'd buy one, a CD, and there may be like, one standout song you know in it but man it was a good one so but i would definitely start with the the trilogy um upon this rock i think is a great record it just the as i tell in the book the the production got you know taken over while larry had the flu and was put to bed largely without his influence and it it (laughs) kind of sounds a little bit wacky even though the songs are really great so but also it has maybe the worst cover art of any record in the rock <laughs> era you know you know um that that record uh that that photograph larry chose that because he felt like when he had the flu he was gonna die and he was gonna like go to be with jesus so that that it's it's him sort of flying up to heaven because he felt like at death's door while he was doing the the record. The the other th- there's an alternative cover for that record which I think is far better. I'll send it to you. Cool. Yeah. Well, I've been steering the conversation so far, but in the spirit of charity on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the last words. What haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to know about Larry Norman? You know, I, I think that what struck me uh, about Larry was that um, in, in the end, his faith in Jesus, despite all of his own mistakes and his, you know, own notoriety, you know, could have completely washed him out or made him be a skeptic or you know, sort of may turn him from baby face into heel, like that documentary you talked about, Fallen Angel. But he he really, really kept a very intimate relationship with Jesus until his dying breath. And um, he reconnected with his family. As you, you know, you've mentioned, he was sort of a difficult person to get along with. But as his health began to fade, he began to get, um, uh, you know, closer to his his uh, family and his fans. Um, several of his fans became very close friends of his toward the end, and um, the the wall of kind of star versus fan completely got erased and and i think that sounds as much like the church as anything i can think about um so that was 
that was notable to to me. And um, then, you know, finally, I would just say, um, uh, I I think that, you know, Larry's story is um, is a cautionary tale for anyone that tries to cross the streams of of uh, the art world and, and uh, the world of the church. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see who survives, uh, you know, that tightrope walk. Almost no one, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this was a blast. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. This, uh, I mean, thank you for giving the book such a close reading, and um, I, I do hope your li- listeners check it out because even if they're not interested in Christian rock or Larry Norman, it, it is sort of this kind of unbelievable tale where at every I called him the Forrest Gump of American Christianity. There's so many crazy twists and turns in the story and um it's a true story well our guest has been gregory allen thornberry his book is called why should the devil have all the good music larry norman and the perils of christian rock it's out march 20th from uh convergent books there'll be a link to it on our website which is christianhumanist.org thanks for listening